You're listening to Heart of the Hunter, a serialized fantasy novel set in Koronai, the magical country. This story was written and performed by Sam Chuck. For more information about this podcast, including upcoming role-playing game releases associated with this novel, check out heartofthehunter.com. And now the story so far. Arn the Gypsy, Peter the Soldier, Raven the Sneak Thief, and Alabar the Healer have traveled far on their journey, but they still have far to go. Using his mystic sight, Arn discovered that an innocent Yarian woman named Chandra had been captured by the brigand known as Mad Jack. To avenge his cousin, who was also killed by Jack, and to save Chandra, Arin, Raven, and Alabar rode with ten other gypsies on the long ride of Vela. Arin promised Peter he would return before the dawn. Riding off into the spirit world, Arin left behind both his sergeant and his sweetheart, the beautiful gypsy named Corinne. The fight with Mad Jack was swift and deadly, owing to complete surprise on the brigand's part. The Quadong underworld agent known as T-Chan was also killed by Raven, but his body reclaimed through some strange, unknown Chengian magic. After finally reaching the young Chandra, Alabar was able to heal most of the apparent wounds of her body, although at a cost to his own personal energy. Meanwhile, Raven discovered a ward box that Tichan had dropped. Finding the magic key to open the lock was around her neck already, in the form of a cameo of her mother. She opened the box and found three items. A glowing spherical jewel, an archer's leather arm guard, and a leather-bound book, the pages of which were blank. Raven cried quiet tears of mourning over her mother and the loss she felt. Now please enjoy episode 11. The sun had passed below the trees, and someone among the riders had started a small campfire for the men's dinner. Arin stalked from the campfire over to where Alobar was tending Vinayan, one of the riders, who'd come back to camp with a crossbow bolt in his arm, a gift from one of Jack's boys. The gypsy singer Arin nodded and smiled to the gypsy scout as Alobar healed him. We've got to get moving soon, brother. There's no telling when Jack's boys will decide it's time to come back and take their revenge on us. Alabar had already withdrawn the bolt in Vinayan's arm and was passing his hand over the injury. It's Chandra, Arin. Her wounds. She needs to rest. Give her time to recover. 
Finishing the healing on the scout, Alabar sent a worried glance over at Arin's tent, where Raven was watching the sleeping woman. Turning back to Vinayan, he patted the man's shoulder and sent him on his way. You're all better, Mr. Finder. Try not to strain this arm today. Thanks, priest. You are quite the healer. Foragahe, Vinayan said, grinning, and headed off to care for his horse. Arin turned his attention from Vinayan back to the shepherd. The moon is rising. How long will we need to wait? Alabar shrugged. Much less time, I assure you, than it would have taken without the healing I gave her. He shuddered. The things she endured. She'll be all right now, I expect, Raven said, emerging from the tent, her satchel put away. She stood in the shadows of the firelight and looked over at Arin. Arin turned away. Should never have left her there at that little outpost. No guards. She didn't want to go with us. We couldn't have made her without holding her at gunpoint. And she was well armed, or so we thought, Raven said. Long years of practice had taught her how to hide the tears she'd just shed for her mother. Her voice may be a little creaky, but they wouldn't see her red-rimmed eyes in the dark. Chandra didn't trust us, Alabar said softly. And, well, why should she? To her we were no more honorable than Mad Jack. But she is a strong one, this Chandra, stronger than even she knows. She will survive this. Arin nodded. How long do you think she'll sleep, Shepard? He approached the front of the tent. She should sleep for many hours until she wakes, or I told her body to do so. So she's out cold until then, Arin asked innocently. The healing sleep lasts quite a while, if that's what you're asking, Alvar said. What are you getting at? Well, she won't have a problem then, Arin said, walking up. To the front flap of his tent, he wrapped his hand around the strap with the buckle that formed his magical rucksack's handle. Alabar held up his hand. Oh, no. No, no. You did that to me. It gets dark in there when you... when you turn it into a rucksack like that. And I couldn't get out! Listen, brother, she's asleep. The night grows ever shorter. We promised the sergeant that we would be back to camp before daylight. The ride of Vela will only take thirteen riders, and it would take days, literally days, to get back to the camp if we did not take the spirit roads. If she is sleeping inside Aunt's rucksack, she could have no problem at all. Besides, I'll keep the pocket unzipped so she can have some fresh air. With one smooth motion, Arn grabbed the satchel strap, and the tent was now a bag again, with Chandra still asleep within. Alabar winced. Are you sure it's safe? Safe as a tadrila in the grass, Arn said, bowing. Whatever that is. I was wondering how you were going to handle that Thirteen Riders thing, Raven said, grinning. <laughs> that sack's a rather nifty item. I would like one of those, please. Mayhaps next life you'll be born a gypsy, Arn said, smiling. Say, speaking of which, don't you remember the Oath of the Road? What of it? Raven asked. 
Well, you promised to share what you got from this journey with us. Didn't I see you with some kind of ward box earlier? What was in it? Arn asked. None of your business, Raven said, crossing her arms under her breasts, her hands resting on her blade tattoos in a silent but expressive threat. Arn bristled and stood his ground. Ah, well, I see... Well, no matter, then. After all, oaths are so easily forgotten. Don't you... It was my mother's. She's gone. It's mine now. That's all you need to know, Raven said frostily. So, in a way, it's her inheritance, isn't it, Arran? Alabar asked, trying to make peace between the two. Ah, yes. Inheritance. Far be it... From me to upset the dead. Aladar. Now let's go. We've wasted enough of the night as it is, Arn said, and turned to walk off, calling for the other riders to assemble. Slowly, visiting each of the candles around the room, the light spread until it illuminated the body of a man. The Chakri, who did this, was dressed in an elegant kimono which had been hand-painted by her ancient great-grandmother for this same purpose. She moved about the ritual as a geisha might perform tea ceremony with quiet purpose. The blood dragon of House Jasmine waited, as much as he wanted to act, he had to know whether Tichan could be revived. Much would depend on this. The answer to this happening would be detailed and long, and its subsequent haratai, the complications, would be considerable. The Shakri paused in her ceremony to meet with the blood dragon's eyes. She nodded once to the man, before picking up the bowl of liquid gold on the altar and its attendant, perfect brush. One eyebrow queried the dragon without a spoken word. Do it. Revive him and damn the expense. And have a care with it, which I will not brook excuses. The Shakri nodded and went about her work. She could already feel the man's soul moving to reunite with his flesh, like the stirrings of a fish caught by hand in a shallow pool. This was the part she most enjoyed, when she could feel the soul breaking through. She liked to prolong the wait to feel its insistence rise to near exhaustion. It was her little revenge on her masters. This one would revive, but he would do so only because she wished it and only after his soul stepped a dance to the tune she called. Tichan would rise again, but he would not long forget what it was to be dead.
Peter could not sleep, so he spent his time grooming his horses. It wasn't just that his soldiers were elsewhere. It was that he wished, wanted, burned to be riding along with them. The moon had risen, and he felt in his bones that they were already seeing action. Staying to guard the caravan was not the sort of thing he would have done back when he was just a recruit, but now he had responsibilities. The entire trip was on his head if it failed. Peter thought about his family, back home in Yaria. His brothers would be growing up, his sisters were still young yet, but it was possible that Michael and William would be ready to take on farms of their own soon. If he could make enough money to send back to them and pay off their debts to the honorable old masters, mayhaps they could. His own father, once a squire to Lord Garrick, could barely get around with his lame foot, and that brought him to thinking about Lord Garrick, a tall man with cascading blonde long hair, a privileged man, a man of power and influence, a knight of the realm. There was a time when all Peter wanted to be was a knight. He wanted to earn the spurs of knighthood on the field of battle, to skip the years of service required of a squire, years of service that did not guarantee that the spurs would ever come to you. If you were not from a wealthy family, or did not have a generous lord, you would have no armor, no horse, no expensive livery. But those who were knighted on the field during battle, were provided for by the king's own coffers. Indeed, the man who was Lord Garrick, banneret of the Gar Creek March, was one such knight. He had subsequently been given land, and afforded much in the way of power on his own, for his years of service to the king of Yar and the church of Aelor. But a few years' service as a squire to Lord Garrick made it clear that Peter's childhood ideals, those of truth, bravery, glory, chivalry, honor, and justice, did not hold sway in the hall of Lord Garrick. Only the mercenaries whom Garrick hired as a half-assed, lazy means of making his muster for the yearly review, it was only they who showed any hint of bravery or nobility as was told to Peter in the vagabond stories he'd heard growing up. Only the mercenaries treated him with kindness, and as if he were someone valuable to them. It was due to the fact that the irregulars had healed Peter after a battle that made up his mind. Soon after, he left Garrick's service to sign up with the old man Hoskins for the first time. Though the household knights of Garrick Hall made fun of the mercenaries and their somewhat less than spectacular dress and equipment, Peter knew which of the two groups he'd rather go to war with. And when the warrior Tangresh tribes had threatened the Gar Creek marches, it was the mercenaries who saved the day and protected the kingdom from their bestial, savage rage, not the knights. The knights frequently just sat their horses on a nearby hill, sipped from cool beakers of wine, and chatted while the men they had hired fought and gave their lives for them. Peter had made up his mind that he would never be a farmer like his father, and he would never serve an arrogant oath like Lord Garrick as his squire. Peter realized with a start that he had been brushing the same horse for some time, a cart horse named Junior. All the while wool-gathering, he turned and did a survey of the campsite, and all seemed well. The gypsies were content to keep to themselves, it seemed. Dinner had been quiet for gypsies, 
that meant there had only been three dances around the fire and only two rounds of wine cups. Do not be afraid, came a voice from the shadows. I am come to speak to you. It was a woman's voice coming from the other side of the horse. Peter put down the brush next to him and put his hand on his service knife, tucking it behind him in the waistband of his pants. What do you want, miss? I don't think gypsies take kindly to their girl folks sneaking about, nor do they appreciate men folk that are found with said girl folk. I'm a firstborn son. I'd like to keep me yazes if it's all the same to you. This is not about your yazes. You are Arn Singer's master. As much as anyone can be, I guess. But we prefer to call it Sergeant. Peter Goldpond here. What can I do for you? Master Goldpond, I... The woman took a step into the firelight and Peter blinked to see her. She had not been around the fire at dinner. She was stunningly beautiful, even in the dim fire and moonlight. Tiny curls of dark hair fell down her shoulders, danced about her face like a cloud. Her eyes were unassuming but womanly, her lips full, made fuller by the gypsy blood. Her curves were dangerously distracting, even concealed as they were by the fairly modest dancing clothes and several layers of silk overdress she wore. They clung to her figure and left little room to wonder at their generous dimensions. This was no girl at all, but a woman, nearly grown into the prime of her youthful power. She smiled slightly at the effect her beauty had on the man, as if privy to a private joke on his behalf. Did I startle you, sir? Not at all. I thought you were one of the gypsies' watch. No, master. I am the one called Corinne. I am come because I miss Aaron. I worry about him. Do you think he will be back soon? Corin asked, her fingers unconsciously twining through a strand of dangling curls. With Aaron, I imagine that there are never any guarantees. He's a strange one, he is. But I understand you gypsies hold by your promises. And he made me one, that he'd be back before dawn. I'm going to hold him to that. Peter said, bringing a pail of cool water closer to the hobbled horses so they could all take turns drinking. Aye, we do keep our promises, but promises cannot make fate do what we will. And if it is his fate to die, I'll have a little saying I'll live by. It's helped me out in the past. Perhaps you'd get you some use out of it. It's this, never borrow trouble. There's trouble enough out there. And the light knows we have our fair share on this trip. We don't need no more, do we? I imagine not, no. That is a wise saying. Did you get that from your mother? From my drill sergeant, but close. I often wonder what makes the Gahe mercenaries leave their women behind to go on long trips where they can't see them. How can you know she is being true to you? if you do not see her. Peter picked up the brush again and began brushing the next horse in line, the one Dahav called Grunter. Oh, I ain't got no woman, man. A soldiering doesn't leave much room to start a family, it's true. I'm young yet, though 
If I don't catch a bullet or get run through, I may yet get through this alive. Then I'll start making my plans, but not before. But do you not get lonely without a woman to think on? I know the men of the tribe have blood that will not be easily denied. It is only the wisdom of their mothers and the teaching of their fathers that keeps their passion in check. Are not Gahe so? Peter suddenly looked up, triggered by the sound of a twig crackling in the bush. His eyes were pretty adjusted to the light, and he didn't see a thing. So he turned back to the beautiful woman. We get plenty lonely. Just, we don't do anything about it. Some of the guys go visit the Red Lanterns. I'm just not that way. Are you Shay, then? The woman said, moving around the horse so she could see him better. No, not that. No, not at all. Just, uh, I'm not one for passing acquaintances. Besides, I don't borrow trouble. And, well, you pardon me, but women are trouble. I think it's a shame, and I think you should know. Warriors fight better. Hunters hunt better when they have more than just anger in their hearts. The heart of the hunter must seek balance between love and hate. Always. I reckon you're right, ma'am. That's what some of the priests have to say, at least. I guess. That you should let the light of your love shine. Some such. I guess it's a pretty idea. I don't see it happening much. And I've been up and down this land. Ah, yes. But that it does not happen much. This is not the reason not to do it. I wish you were not Gahe, Peter Coldbond. There are several women of the tribe who are ready to marry, and they would not seek to hold you prisoner to your heart. The Velisti know that a man must follow his path, however he sees it, always. Aye, that be true, but I be Gahe, as you say, plus I be Oren's friend and shield mate, I wouldn't. The woman laughed and shook her head, sending her beautiful curls flying for a moment. No, 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 Master Coldpond. Do you think I would put an offer of the Tandaliza to you? No, no. Even were I to, you're a gahe, and I have no permission from Mamza. No, no. I am true in my heart and body, if not in my speech. Please forgive me. And in my heart I am promised to Arunin, if he would only come back to us and stay for a time. A man's got to follow his own path, didn't you say? With that her face fell. Peter was sorry to see, but she did eventually nod in acknowledgement. Foragahe, you are wise, Master Golpond. Mayhaps you will teach this wisdom to Arinin, and he will come to know his proper path. May it be so, then? Peter said. Say, did you hand me that pig? I... Suddenly, there was a whooshing, a short, sharp, piercing sound. Corinne screamed and fell. You've been listening to Heart of the Hunter, a Coronai Chronicles story. Heart of the Hunter is brought to you by the Fireheart Foundry family of podcasts. Fireheart Foundry also produces Fledgling, a Leaden Universe science fiction novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. 
The Bears Grove Podcast. Dragonkin, the podcast for kids and gaming. The Square One Podcast. And Vibrant Living. Find out more about the Fireheart Foundry at fireheartfoundry.com. This podcast is brought to you under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives, no commercial use, license 2.5. Music is provided by the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening, and we invite you back to our fire real soon.